passages open in Isaiah be helpful for you and helpful for me. Um, I said before from the front that one of the ironies of the so-called Enlightenment is that in lots of ways people ended up being more confused. So people of the Enlightenment would look back over centuries beforehand, they would see such little advancement in terms of uh, politics or economic progress or, or culture, and they coined them the, the Dark Ages. Things were so slow and so black, it was, it was a derogatory term. Uh, and with the progress of the Enlightenment, at least that's what they thought, there came this self-sufficiency that said, we will find out the answers to things. We will work out as to what this world is about and what we're doing here and, and how this world works. And, and the problem was then everyone came up with a different answer. And who's right? If I think it's about this and you think it's about that, then how do we de- decide what truth is? How do you decide who is right? Whose account do you run with? And so people were left all the more confused and they ended up, I might say, in the dark. And as we open God's word this evening, just to fairly briefly reflect upon Christmas, immediately again we are struck with the idea of darkness. If you were around this morning, um, we did glance at these verses. They're fascinating verses. We, we, we zoomed past them just jumping in and jumping out. We're going to have a chance to slow down this evening and think a bit more carefully about it. But where are we, first of all? Where are we in God's story with the world? Well, we find a divided people in Isaiah. They're a, a kingdom at war, a kingdom in darkness. Just like our, our first parents in the garden, God's people had, had shaken their little fists at the God who made them and said, we don't want you to be in charge of us. We, we turn away from your words and your ways, and so they had lost God's um, favour and his blessing over them. You get a taster of that um, at the end of chapter 8. Just look at the bit before, Susie, you read for us. Uh, 8 verse 19 there. And when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Do you like there's a double darkness going on. There's firstly this darkness of sin and ignorance. What are they doing? They are talking to mediums and spiritists in verse 19. They've gone for other so-called spiritual wisdom. But, but they're just dead. They're dead. And secondly then, that kind of darkness leads to the darkness of judgment. They are thrust into utter darkness. The very last um, verse in that chapter 8. But when we reach chapter 9, then we find things are different. It's a time of hope, a time of transformation, if you like, a time of grace. So first point for this evening then is the dawn. The promise of Isaiah to the people living in darkness is the promise of of transformation. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Often in the Bible, and the language of light is the language of God's saving presence, God showing up to rescue his people. Just as we said last week, if you were here, how do you get rid of darkness? You bring light. That's how darkness is chased away. You know that if you have children who have nightmares, or if you're having a nightmare yourself, what do you do? You, you put the light on. You get rid of the darkness. You look for the light switch. You don't try and mop up the darkness or, or sweep up the darkness and throw it away. You put the light on. And so with all the suddenness of a new dawn, when the sun reappears, here comes a new day. Isaiah promises that the darkness of sin's night will be gone and the gloom of judgment will disappear. And who are going to see it first? Have a look at verse 1. It's going to be Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and then Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. What, why them? Well, they were the first people to be taken over by the Assyrians, the dominant superpower of the time. They were in the northern kingdom. They were removed by force in about AD 731. uh, Sorry, 731 BC. Who who brings light and salvation? Who's going to kick off this new dawn? Do you see it? It's God. God is going to come. He's going to dispel the darkness. And how will he do it? He will do it by means of a deliverer. God is going to change their situation. He's going to transform their darkness into light. He's going to come and build for them a new kingdom. Notice just a number of characteristics of this kingdom. We're going to zoom through it fairly quickly. Um, But four things to point out. The first one is it's going to be an expanding nation. The nation will enlarge. Simply, it will grow It is going to get bigger and bigger. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. God is going to deliver on his promise to Abraham at the start of the Bible. Do you remember that promise? He's going to make you fruitful and increase in number. You're going to have a family as as big as the the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And yet we, we might be allowed to doubt it because many of God's people have been carried off. Many more will be carried off. They're going to be taken into physical exile is a vivid picture of their spiritual exile from God gone from the land that he made for them but when God's grace appears then the kingdom will grow the new people will return to God and they will see fruit so first it's going to be a growing nation verse 3 then in verse 3 again it's going to be a joyful nation secondly it's not going to be a temporary joy. It won't be a roller coaster joy that we go through. Joy one minute, sadness the next. This will be true joy. Last year we, um, we decided to introduce Barney, um, our seven year old, to uh, his first ever vaguely professional football match. And we went with, with Andrew Sadler, who some of you will know. We went to watch Oxford United. Um, uh oh. You can imagine, can't you, the, the feelings on the football terraces, the, the emotions that you sense, they are so temporary. 
so dependent on the match, so transient, so dependent on the ball going in the net or passes being put together or a team playing well. Uh, in the case of the match that we saw, not that at all. They conceded within three minutes and they went on to thoroughly lose. It was, it was a roller coaster of emotions. You, your team are doing well, everyone's happy. You know that the other fans are going to be hurling abuse at you and vice versa. Which seems to me a picture of life to some extent, perhaps without the hurling abuse, but the idea of, of our joy being good and we're happy because things are going well and then the rug is pulled out and life is difficult. But this kingdom won't be like that. They will be a joyful people. Their joy will be steadfast because of the cause of their joy. Do you see, they, they rejoice before you, verse 3. They rejoice before God. It's not temporary, changeable stuff. It's because of who God is. Because of what he's done for them. So they are a joyful nation, verse 3. It's the picture as well, do you see, of, of a plentiful harvest, of, of them being victorious in battle as the verse unfolds. They are, they are thankful for God's intervention, thankful for his deliverance. As well as joy, though, they shall be free, in verse 4. The kingdom will be marked by freedom. God has secured this people a freedom for his people and so they will find they are at rest. Gone are the wearisome days of being oppressed and taken captive and finding themselves in, in exile, not at home. There are people to be free. The reference in verse 4 to Midian's defeat is Isaiah taking his listeners back to the days of Gideon, if you remember. Gideon, who, with his just his paltry 300 men who, who overthrow the enemies. He, well, so this is the same God. Just as he did then, so he will do. So he will bring freedom. He will free his people from the forces that hold them captive. He will give them the freedom that they long for. Even if the odds look horribly stacked against them, I take it. It's why we love the underdog to win, don't we? We, we love for Wales to win at rugby, whatever it might be. Well, so with this Gideon defeat... Isaiah says it's going to be better than that. Gideon, if Gideon is, and his 300 men can rout an entire army, while well, Isaiah is confident that God will bring freedom, future freedom to this, this true freedom to a new kingdom. It's going to be free and finally peaceful. It'll be a peaceful nation. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle. Every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. No more conflicts. No more strife. No more battling. This is going to be a kingdom marked by real peace. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? As you switch the television on or as you read the news that day, whatever it might be, isn't that the kind of place that you long for? The kind of place that we all want? One day, God's grace will bring a permanent, transforming peace. It's, it's a beautiful picture. It's military clothing, not just put into storage or, or folded away, but rather there's no need for it. It's going to be burnt. 
It's going to be fuel. Don't you long for a place like that? And we think yes, but then the cynic in, in us says, well, I'm not sure I really believe it. Do you know, I've been hurt too much in the past. People have promised me things and it's not come to pass. We believe the politicians who said they could make a difference. They said they could change things, but they don't follow through. They never deliver. And we think, who is going to establish a kingdom like that? What sort of a... Should we get you a drink, Cam? You okay? She's dying quietly on the front row. <laughs> a place of no more suffering and coughing. Who's going to establish that kind of a kingdom where, where there will be true peace? How's that going to happen? The answer? The answer is Christmas. That's the answer. How is this kingdom going to be brought in? It, it's going to be through a deliverer. It's going to be through a baby in Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. Oh, too far. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The surprising thing about this breaking in of a new dawn from God, this dawn of God's grace, is that it's not seen to arrive in power in the conventional sense. It doesn't arrive with a fanfare, but it arrives in a fragility, weakness. He's going to be very, very human, going to reign on David's throne from the line of David. Do you see that there in verse 7? We heard this last week, didn't we, about an exciting baby um, who's going to be born in, uh, whatever it is, six months' time. Kate and William expecting an heir to the throne. The people were happy and joyful, and yet the baby we read of here is going to be far, far more precious than that. He's painted as well, interestingly, in not just human terms, but in divine terms as well. So there in verse 6, he's going to be mighty God, everlasting Father. It feels like a paradox, a contradiction in terms. How can we have a weak king who's going to come as a baby, and yet he's still God? How does that work? I guess in one sense, it's an answer to the problems that they've faced for many years. The original pattern, it seems to me, at the start of the Bible was that God was to rule over his people. He, if you like, would be their king. But as we saw, they didn't want that. And then in one sense, the only reason they end up with human kings is because they want to be like the nations all around them. Everybody else has got one, so we want one. They were supposed to be distinctive and different from the nations, but they wanted to be like them. And so they got what they wanted. They had a king who would rule over them. Who would represent God to the people. Who, who would be their leader. The king would represent God to the people. And the people to God, almost like a priest. And he in turn would then sit under God and lead his people like God. He was a human representative from God. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work because maybe unsurprisingly as we would expect, we are sinful. We are human. And so things went wrong. They were meant to rule like God with justice and righteousness and humility, these human kings. 
who would lead the people well, and with no exception, they all really fall. They all muck up. They all fall short of God's standards. They are all tainted. And just like the dictators or kings or politicians or rulers of today, they got stuff wrong. But then we imagine who a king, a king who is both human and divine at the same time. We find a king who can rule perfectly. A king who is both very, very powerful and yet very, very kind. One who is able to establish and uphold justice and righteousness forever. A baby is to be a gift from God. He will bring liberating and life-giving rule and the government will be on his shoulders. Verse 6. And yet, as we've seen, he's not just a gift from God. He is rather the gift of God himself. Wonderful counsellor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. This child will be the one from David's line who will rule forever. And of course it's this time of year that we celebrate his birth. The one that Isaiah speaks of. The one that he he longed for. For the birth of Jesus. It's the dawn of God's transforming grace. The dawn of a new promised kingdom. So have a flick over with me. To Matthew 4. Matthew 4 and verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Isaiah prophesied to those in darkness, to a world like ours, so God gives the greatest gift that he can give. He gives himself. Emmanuel, God with us. With us as his saving, transforming light that will renew a world held captive by sin and in the the grip of the shadow of death and judgment. God with us to bring his gracious deliverance, to turn lives around, to transform our situations. God with us in fragile flesh who who lived, who laid down his life to deliver us from darkness. It is this baby that we read of at Christmas that we think about grows into a man and we move from, from the cradle to the cross. And if we think a baby looks fragile and weak and powerless... Well, how much more a man dying on a cross? I think it was Arsene Wenger who allegedly said, uh, he's the Arsenal manager, sorry if you don't like football, he allegedly said that Christmas is important, but that Easter is vital. 
And so as Jesus dispels the darkness of sin and the shadow of death and judgment by taking it upon himself, so we see that Easter is vital. He comes to deliver by conquering not an oppressive regime, although many would have expected that, but he comes to deliver by dealing with sin and with judgment and with death. And with that deliverance, it seems to me, comes true enlightenment as well. We know who we are. We know what life is about. We know who God is. We know what we're here for. So Christmas is a season for looking back. Looking back to God's made man. Looking back and praising Christ for the salvation that he won, for joy and freedom and peace. And yet maybe there's still something slightly nagging which says, well, the world still looks pretty dark to me. What about the suffering now? What about evil now? If Jesus has come and done his delivering thing and he's brought in this kingdom and it's here with joy and peace and no conflict, then why do we see such misery? And why is my life so hard? Why does the world now not match up with the description that we have in Isaiah 9? It's a great question. I don't know if you're a fan of um, Simon and Garfunkel. Some of you might be. There's a, there's a great song on the Parsley Sage Rosemary and Thyme uh, album from 1966 where, where they sing the Christmas carol Silent Night. And at the same time, you've got the seven o'clock news going on in the background. It's this crescendo of news clips right the way through the song. It's called Seven O'Clock News Slash Silent Night. And you've got reports of crime and war and suffering and anguish and hatred. And they seem to be asking the same sort of questions. Why? In the foreground, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. In the background, war, suffering, hatred. They're saying, let's be realistic, this world is a mess. What are these carols about? They can seem so far removed from the reality that we sing about when we switch the news on. It seems to me that the issue is that the kingdom is here, but it's not, it's not fully here. It's begun, but it's not finished. It's it's arrived, but it's not consummated. It's like the young couple who are engaged, their relationship is established, it's, it's definite, it's going to happen, they're pledged, they're promised to be married, but they're not yet married. The kingdom is here, it's begun, it's started, but we're still on this sinful earth and we're in these bodies that break and we're in a fallen world. And that is why we see what we do. That is why we read Isaiah 9 and get so excited and then look around us and think, well, what's gone wrong? That's our answer for Simon and Garfunkel. Which, of course, is why then Christmas doesn't just point us backwards. Back to Jesus being born, but ahead to his second coming too. Listen to this from the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21. We're going to be here in the mornings in January. If you want to come and join us, it would be great to have you. Thinking through the certain hope that Christians have um, from the last two chapters in the Bible. True forever peace. 
the deliverance fully and finally enjoys. 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. And you see, as surely as Isaiah looked ahead and, and glimpsed this new dawn of Jesus and it came. So as John looks ahead and once again glimpses a, a new order No more mourning or crying or pain or suffering. A a time for the new heavens and the new earth. Well, so it will come. A time when there really will be no darkness. A time of joy and peace forever. 